every time I do something hard, like it feels good. And then you're like, okay, what's next? Like, mm-hmm. and I guess you, you know, like a drug or something, you build up a tolerance to it and you need more and more to, to have the same effect. And so you go from being happy, running up a hill just outside the city in Edinburgh where I live, for example. And then next thing you know, to get that same, that same feeling, <laughs> you're running up bon bon, So. Uh, none, none of it was ever planned. It just it feels all very natural. I just listen to listen to my body and do whatever my body wants to do. And- Those who are living a life of freedom have optimized themselves and their lives in pursuit of one thing: choice. They've created the financial, geographical, and time freedom to do what they want when they want to. But they've also created freedom from their internal limitations. Their story their biology and their character in this podcast the freedom project it is my attempt to shortcut your learning curve to having total freedom in your life so you can go and do more cool shit i'm going to bring you deep dives into some of the most inspiring adventure athletes and business owners in the world i'm also going to give you the key concepts of my coaching process to adventurepreneurs so you can start applying that to your life today so here is another episode of the freedom project what could possibly possess a man to run the fastest known time from the base of the valley to the top of Mont Blanc and back again? The thrill of adventure, the unknown, and the chance to test oneself. Ian Inns spent years making his way into professional ski racing, but eventually he realised this wasn't just his journey and took a step back from his lifelong goal. Without this structure, Ian entered the unknown. Yet he found his way through embracing adventure, discovering mountaineering and mountain exploration and pursuing what was authentic to him. Ian seeks freedom in all its guises and in this episode you're going to discover how Ian trains for these insane challenges without a training program to follow, the thrill of going solo and going unsupported, how to handle difficult transition moments in life and how to satiate your desire for adventure when times are uncertain. Ian is full of life, full of adventure, and I just know you're going to love this episode. And it makes me just recording this, having this conversation, made me want to get out and have an adventure right now. He's a great guest, a great person to follow, and I really hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to the show, man. Um, it's great to have you on board. Let's start with what on earth possessed you to go from Lesouche to the top of Mont Blanc and back in the quickest time possible. Uh, that was a very good question. Um, I'd been to Chamonix last summer. Um, done lots of climbing, you know, rock stuff, mountaineering. Um, I didn't actually ski on that trip, but you know, I've got a whole variety of um rock climbing experience out there. But I didn't go up Mont Blanc, and um, I, I don't know. When I left at the end, I thought that's a shame that I didn't do that. Um, and obviously, then I had ten months until I was next able to go to, to Chamonix in summer and I guess during that 10 months I spent a lot of time thinking I should have done that and I better go and do it this time and then um, I, I always liked this idea of doing it in one push from the valley floor you know most people uh, I guess it's most commonly done in two days people would get up to the, the refuges you know at 3,000 meters or whatever spend the night there it gives them some acclimatization it allows them to split the climb in two and then in the morning, uh, second morning, get up early, summit, and get all the way down. But uh, huts were expensive, they're hard to book, and it wasn't really the, the style that I wanted to do it in. I wanted, yeah, I had this idea in my head of, of doing it from the valley floor, which um, isn't uncommon. You know, lots of other people have, have done that before. Um, but yeah, it was a, a cool project. And as soon as I got out to Chamonix, actually, we saw um, Hilary Girardi, who's an American trail runner based out there. She just set a new uh, fastest known time from Chamonix Church straight up. Um, well, I guess you would describe that as the north face. It's not really a north face, but um, north facing. Uh, she went straight up the shortest route through there. Um, with it being my first project of that style, um, I, I didn't want to do that route. There was more uh, more risk of ending up in a crevasse. It was much more crevasse glacier. It wasn't as popular as a route. There wasn't as many people. And I wanted to do it in solo, unsupported style. Um, and the only way that I was comfortable doing that at the time uh, was going up what's called the normal route, the Goutte route. Um, generally, people take a train for the first thousand meters. 
and they're hiking over a thousand meters or so to the the huts, stay in one of the huts, and then obviously do it the next day. Uh, whereas I started from the church in Lazouche, um, which is at the bottom of the Goute route, um, and climbed four thousand meters elevation gain all the way to the top, um, and then all the way back down again. And I, I, I always wanted to do it, like I said, in, in fast and light style and solo unsupported. Um, but the the FKT wasn't uh, wasn't really in my mind at all. Uh, the supported record had just been broken by um, a Scandinavian runner, a guy called Petter Engdahl, about ten days before, um, and he set a really fast time. I think he did five five hours fifty one, something like that. So I knew I wasn't going to break any records. But then the, the more I went, uh, or the more time passed, the more I realised I was going fairly quickly. You know, I managed to reach the summit in four hours forty, something like that. Um, and then absolutely hammered down. I mean, I lost 4,000 meters or went down 4,000 meters in I think like two hours, 15 minutes or something. So my total time was 6.54, just over an hour behind Petter. Obviously he'd done it with somebody else, um, a slightly different style. I did the the whole thing on my own. And I don't know, it's quite cool. Petter's a, a professional athlete and I don't think I'm quite there yet. I've just a guy that looked at the mountain and thought, right, I want to go and do that. And in the, the purest style possible, which is on your own, uh, unsupported and starting at the bottom and finishing back at the bottom. Yeah. It's also a way that I imagine sucks in terms of like the discomfort going both uphill and downhill. I imagine there's a fair amount of discomfort in that. Uh, yeah, there is. But I also, I mean, that, that was the experience I was after. I think, um, you know, for something to feel rewarding, it's got to be challenging. If it was easy, then, you know, a lot of people, or I wouldn't enjoy doing things that are easy. You need some element of uh, risk or challenge or some kind of hardship for it to... Where does that come from, that that kind of desire for doing difficult things? Uh, I mean, I guess some of it's human nature. Um, But you personally, like... For me personally, every every time I do... Every time I do something hard, like it feels good, and then you're like, okay, what's next? Like, mm-hmm. and I guess you, you know, like a drug or something, you build up a tolerance to it, and you need more and more to to have the same effect. And so you go from being happy running up a hill just outside the city in Edinburgh, where I live, for example, and then next thing you know, to get that same that same feeling, <laughs> you're mm-hmm. running up Mont Blanc. So uh, none none of it was ever planned. It just it feels all very natural. I just listen to listen to my body and do whatever my body wants to do and i felt obviously felt an attraction towards that that mountain and was there anyone that set that example for you growing up um i mean so my parents introduced me to skiing my my mum's always been a runner um but i think you know a lot of it maybe comes from social media as well i think people talk a lot of shit about social media but um all of the since stopping ski racing, uh, a lot of the things that I've, I'm doing and discovering now are either inspired by things I've seen on social media or just from research and things on the internet. You know, the year of of COVID was maybe when I really started pushing into what you might call ski mountaineering, or I guess it's just ski touring at the end of the day, but a level up maybe. Once you start to involve ropes and these kind of things, that's when it gets interesting. And you know, you spend I mean, my whole life as a kid, people tell you, you know, you can't, you can't do that. That area is not safe. That's dangerous. If people tell you all the things that you can't do, and then at some point you realize, I don't know, you see a guy on the internet doing it, and you're like, hang on, that is possible. There's that French dude based out in Chamonix. He's just abseiled into a couloir, and then he's flown out on a paraglider at the end. And I don't know, these are all the things that people tell you you can't do, and they're too dangerous. And suddenly realize you can actually do whatever you want. Yeah, and that's the benefit of social media, right? when you mm-hmm. get inspired by it i suppose there's also the risk of you see something and go like i could do that <laughs> and then you end up in an awful situation um but okay so you had your your parents who introduced you to skiing was there anyone who like had that thirst for adventure like that kind of i want to go out and do not just kind of exciting stuff but new stuff um i don't know where exactly uh that came from i think um yeah, I think, like I said, just naturally that happened where I just got curious and 
you know, like now, for example, if I'm working somewhere, I've just been in South America for two months and first thing I do when I get somewhere, I'll, I'll see a mountain. I'm like, fuck, I need to do that. Um, or I'll see, you know, there's a, a ridge that looks like it's runnable, but I'm not sure. I don't know. I just have to go and find out. <laughs> I can't just sit there and, and wonder. Um, the curiosity just gets the better of me. Yeah. It's that spirit of adventure. I don't know whether it's like, I can only speak to, for guys, but that's because I mm-hmm. hear about guys talking about it the whole time. But it seems like inbuilt. It seems like there's something yeah. in us that just goes like, I want, like to look at something massive and pointy and go like, I want to get, I want to stand on top of that. I want to run mm-hmm. up it. I want to challenge that. And it's like, I don't know. How does that feel for you? Like that, that kind of excitement around it? Um, I think for me, it's always the best bit is like when you're not sure if you can do it and then you do it. And I guess a lot of things, maybe you're quite confident going into them, but with the mountains, there's just so much uncertainty. You never really know what's going to happen. You never really know how it's going to go or how long it's going to take you. Um, and yeah, I guess the bigger a challenge it is, the, the more interesting it becomes, the more uncertainty there is when you actually get it done. And you're like, oh yeah, that was sick. Yeah, you're right. It's not necessarily danger but it's uncertainty it's like i want to go out on an adventure on a mission to encounter something different and even like you know let's just say it's a simple skeeter you know you're going to complete the skeeter so there's no or i mean you can be 99 percent sure that you're going to complete the thing and you're going to survive but there's still um like you don't know how the snow conditions are going to be you don't know if you're going to get to ski the exact line that you wanted to ski uh you don't know who you're going to meet it's all these things like the only way to experience all of this is to go out and do it you can't just um think about these things and that's what makes you grow at the end of the day going out and i don't know experiencing new stow types or witnessing an avalanche or uh, bumping into two french guys at the top of the line or whatever there's so many different things that can happen and all of them are interesting um so yeah what was the ambition when you said like i want to go up to mont blanc come back like what were you wanting from that um i guess i wanted to i mean i just wanted to go up mont blanc just because it's the tallest mountain in europe and i thought well that looks cool and it's obviously got this hype around it because of it um but also um you know the more the more running i've been doing uh the more it was also about the, the physical challenge and i mean there basically isn't anywhere else in europe that you can climb 4,000 meters uninterrupted, you know, from the, the very first step, uh, I don't think you, I don't think there's even like three or four meters of descent on the way up, the way the trails are. Um, actually, that's a lie. There's maybe one or two bits um, once you're on the glacier at the top where it rolls over and you maybe descend 20, 30 meters. But it's, it's basically 4,000 meters of pure ascent. Um, and there's not really anywhere else you can find that. So, What's that your training like for that? Um... I mean, so I run a lot. I must run maybe six days a week at the minute. Um, what kind of distance? I run. Um, I must average fifty k a week. I think when when I've got time and when I'm not working, you know, that will be up closer to a hundred k a week. But uh, and then maybe if, if work's busy, you know, it'll drop to thirty or forty k a week. Um, but I, I really just listen to my body. So uh, I don't have a, a program or a schedule or anything like that. Um, I just wake up and and do what my my body wants to do and so I mean clearly listening to my body works because when I'm at work for example and I'm tired out from work things I'm only able to run 30-40k a week Um, but then like when I've got a week off just naturally my body um, you know I'll I'll feel feel good for a big run and then the next day I'll still feel good for another big run and then the next day again Um, and it's, I mean, it's not easy, but like it, it feels right running up to 100 kilometers in a week. My body, that's what my body wants to do. And then, like I said, in a work week, my body just isn't up for that. I think if I've got a busy week at work and I try and push on and pay attention to the numbers too much, uh, I just end up exhausted. And then when I've got my week off, I'm too tired to do anything then. <laughs> that must really differ from the approach to uh, like training to be a ski racer. And yeah, like definitely. this, these are my sets and reps. This is the training program for today. Like this is yeah. when this has to happen. Like how's that? Um, actually, yeah. Firstly, like talk about um, how different that is. And then I want to ask you a few more questions about that. Uh, I mean, that, that's hugely different. Like the, the last year of racing I did when I was 20, 21, 
uh, was the, the most serious. I had support from Scottish Institute of Sport. I was able to go and train, I don't know, three or four days a week um, at this national uh, training centre. It was amazing, but um, it was pretty much just, you know, you've got your programme, you've got your coach, they'll tell you what you're doing each day. And I mean, there's some give or take if you're tired, but generally you just stick to the programme. Um, and I mean, from a scientific point of view, that definitely gets results, but I would say I'm a, a better, fitter, healthier, stronger athlete now than I ever have been. And currently I don't have any programs or anything like that. I'm definitely uh, curious, um, you know, if I can get up and down Mont Blanc in the time that I did with no, no training program or no schedule, just by going off feeling, um, I wonder what I could do if I was back on a program. The only I mean, I guess that's the curiosity thing again, wondering what if, what if, if I could do that, what would happen? Um, but I'm, I'm just slightly cautious. You know, I loved ski racing, but at the end, I didn't love it as much as I, I should have. Um, and I wonder if some of that was because, you know, you've, you've got to go on camp on these dates, you've got to train X, Y, Z, you've got to do this cardio session, you've got to lift that much. And I don't think I'm someone that's ever dealt particularly well with authority, and I wonder if maybe that's why um, why I didn't enjoy it as much at the end as I might. You know, everything I do right now, I absolutely love it and um, wouldn't change anything. So that's why I'm maybe nervous to return to a structured program or having a coach. Where does that authority come from when you're training for ski racing? Um, well, I guess because, you know, your coaches or uh, your personal trainers in the gym um, – you know they're experts at their job. They they do know what's best, and they they will uh, provide you with the best possible program. And everything they're telling you is absolutely right. But maybe you just don't want to do that one day, or, you know. Yeah, especially when you're like, it, what? How old are you when you're going through like the majority of that? It was like early twenties, late teens. Yeah, exactly. I guess um, where it was serious from. I mean, it was serious from a young age, but I'd say from like seventeen to. 21 i guess those are my kind of four last years of racing it was it was it was my life at that point and the plan was to to be a professional skier and so you know that these guys have your best their best interests at heart and if they tell you i mean you don't have to follow their program but if they tell you to follow the program it's because it's, it's the right thing to do um but maybe i just realized i didn't want to to live in that way or operate in that style that's also like the peak time in your life where you just think oh fuck off i'm gonna do what i want to do <laughs> like i just like exactly. you're, you're kind of exploring you're like you want adventure and if you if you're sticking by structure yeah there's a huge amount of benefit to it but yeah is it the most beneficial thing for you as a human yeah i was definitely that kid that would get told off for powder skiing when we we're supposed to be training gs or you know like for example when they give you zone two sessions and you've got stick it stay below i don't know 130 or 140 heart rate and i felt good on that day so i just went and rode hard or i was chasing strava segments or doing something silly and um, you know that was um i guess that's the ian that we're seeing now but there wasn't so much of that back then generally i would stick to what i was supposed to do and stick to the programs and train when i needed to train yeah part of me is the coach part makes me think like you had so much structure and rigidity there mm -hmm. and now you've gone like okay let's explore let's make up for lost time let's kind of find out like the more authentic, authentic part of me and mm -hmm. now it's like a kind of and eventually I'll put, there'll probably be like some sort of combo of like okay this is my rough structure this is kind of the the kind of the skeleton of it but eventually mm -hmm. i'm going to push out and and find that exploration as well yeah yeah. So what does training now look like? Is is like exploratory? It's it's kind of um just kind of going out for runs when you feel like it, or is there any kind of structure there at all? Uh, no structure, but like I said, I think my body's quite good at telling me what it needs and naturally uh there's days where I feel good so I'll go and run faster and do more hills or you know your, your heart rate just creeps up because you're having fun and you feel like running fast and then there's days when you're tired and I can feel it immediately and I'll end up running slower and you know I would never really uh, I don't like to think of my runs as being you know like this is a zone four run that's a zone two run but it but it, it works that way I end up having slow runs with lower heart rates and then um 
runs where I'm just naturally pushing harder and going faster. So you end up with something that you probably end up doing similar um, style of sessions to someone that has a program, but it's just, it's not programmed. It's just me listening to my body and doing whatever feels right. Yeah. Going back to ski racing, how did you first get into it? Um, started skiing at Helland, you know, I was doing, I mean, I think I first skied on a family holiday when I was two. At some point as a child, uh, the instructors at Helland suggested, oh, you know, you should do a bit of racing. And then we, we lived in England for a few years and we joined a race club there and we did some, we did some race camps on snow with them. And like anything, it just grew arms and legs. It wasn't necessarily ever the plan of my parents that I'd become a ski racer, but, um, if the instructors and coaches are like, oh, you should try this, you should try that, and naturally you just go from one thing to the other, and next thing you know, you're doing yeah. a full ski season it like, in the Alps. And yeah, what's it like, kind of um, pursuing being a professional snow athlete in a country that notoriously doesn't get that much snow? Um, yeah, not easy. You should definitely <laughs> you, you want to ask some of the the current athletes that question. Um, the state of British skiing at the minute isn't isn't great. There's um, an incredible lack of funding. Um, mm. I probably shouldn't get sucked into <laughs> to talking about getting the politics. Yeah, there's definitely some politics there. Um, but yeah, long, long story short, it's not easy, and um, you, you really have to fund yourself, find your own sponsors because uh, the governing body is not going to help you. <laughs> Yeah, and like so, the only thing that I've witnessed is like, as you know, I know Billy Major kind of fairly mm. well, um, yeah. and like, I've seen his development, but like his situation seems like the only way to like become a prof- like a, one of the only ways to really nail it and to have everything going for you is for your family to be British but to move out to France and to have that kind of you've got the the resources there you've got the snow there you've got like the yeah. training facilities there you've got the coaches there it must be a constant struggle for someone like you who's based in in Edinburgh to like yeah go, I mean, okay, I'm going to make that work for me yeah you're competing against the best in the world which are you know the French the Swiss the Austrians and these are all kids that grew up in ski resorts you know they've had really good grassroots structures so uh, local clubs that provide training I don't know every day of the week there's ski schools as in like schools where you can go and do your studies but you also get to ski half the week and obviously we don't have that in the UK um, so I, th- I think actually it's amazing you know that team that you talked about where Billy is there's Billy, Laurie uh, and Dave I mean there's Charlie Raposo as well we've got a few Brits right now so it's amazing that they are all still going and they are all performing at top 30 World Cup level. Um, it's really impressive when you look at what they're able to do, considering they've not had the, the same opportunities that Austrians, French, Swiss, whatever, what they've yeah, had. Absolutely. It's, it's kind of that British mentality. There's this um, mm-hmm. explorer that I'm obsessed with, Bill Tillman, um, and he used to just like get in a boat and refuse any kind of technology so he'd be um he'd like i want to go climb like get first ascent in greenland like he'll put some ads in a paper and then he'd like go looking for these kind of people you want to come along we're not going to have any kind of um we're going to have any technology and we're just going to set off and try and do this and he'd be like navigating using a sextant and all this kind of stuff and <laughs> like and like he'd frequently lose people off the back of the boat and like right. it or he'd almost every single journey he'd almost die and it was like it was so good to see we were reading his his book about it in his biography but it's like that british mentality to doing difficult stuff it's like Uh i'll figure this out like where there's a will there's a way yeah absolutely yeah you must uh you must see a fair amount of that in in pursuing a sport like you did yeah for sure um some people (laughs) you know maybe some people are even too sure of themselves and they should read the writing on the wall and um, focus on something else. You know, within within British skiing, there's there's plenty of people um, that have got more money than sense. Let's just uh, put it that way. I bet. I bet. So, what was the like? If you don't mind sharing this, we can like we can go into it. And if you want to cut it out, we can always cut it out. Mm-hmm. What was the sequence of events that led you to say, actually, this isn't for me anymore? 
And so I was ski racing for the bulk of my career. I was ski racing with a French group called Orsatis based in the Three Valleys. Um, it was, as far as ski racing goes, it was cost effective. It was cheaper than all of the British programs, for example. Um, that's British private academies. And then maybe two or three years before I stopped, this new British national team kind of resurfaced. For years, there was no British team, but this Europe Cup group started to develop. And each year I'd had the opportunity to join, but I just, I, I didn't have full faith in it. And um, I, I, I thought Orsatis, this French group, was better for me. And so I stayed there uh, for a few more years. And eventually I felt like I'd outgrown that. And I thought, you know, maybe it's time to take a take a chance and join the national team. There was a really strong group of athletes there the same year as me, um, but the the staffing wasn't anything impressive at all. And I did this year, and um, it it wasn't the year that I'd hoped for. Um, I mean, from a, a personal point of view, I had my best season. Um, I ended up with good points in in the three disciplines that I was seriously competing in. Um, it went well from that point of view, but the support from the the staff and the coaching team just wasn't up to up to scratch and I realized there's absolutely no way these guys are gonna get me to the Olympics I just I didn't see it happening and I definitely could have skied for a few more years um but when I was trying to compete against French Swiss Austrians um like you, you need a really strong support team and that support team uh, as far as I could tell didn't exist at the if I'd outgrown the, the French program I was with and then the national team program wasn't suitable either, I, I ran out of options. So I decided to I decided to leave the national team. Um, I, hadn't, I hadn't decided to stop skiing at the end of the season. I was still planning to ski in every season. I left the national team and I just, I couldn't, I couldn't find anywhere that provided a, a setup appropriate for me. Um, you know, with Laurie and Billy, it's a little bit different because they were, slalom skiers but I was never a slalom skier and there just there wasn't anything for me and it was about halfway through the summer after that last season that I realized I think I'm out of options here <laughs> like I, I don't really know what to do um, and it was only then that I started to think well maybe it's time to move on to something else and uh, it took me a while to make that decision but eventually um, I kind of took the gamble and said right that's it no more no more ski racing it's time to to figure out what's next and I had no idea what was next I had no plan I hadn't thought about it in advance um, so it took me I guess a couple of years to figure that out that must have been an incredibly daunting decision to go I'm going for this big change in direction it, it, it was and I wasn't I mean I was 21 I wasn't as mature then as I am now so I had absolutely no idea what was going to happen um, had no plan um, and kind of just had to take what was in front of me and do what I could with it. And um, quickly I was offered a job coaching um, by someone who'd coached me as a kid, a group called ATC, uh, and ended up coaching for the best part of two years with them. Um, mostly had under-16s, under-14s, um, went to all the British races out in the Alps, um, and then... Then, yeah, going into my third year out of racing, I'd, uh, I'd planned to do something similar, a bit more coaching. Um, but this guy, Charlie Raposo, um, gave me a call. He's he's still racing, and he it was totally out of the blue. He just said, um, my ski technician's changing jobs, or he's changing careers. Um, do you want to be my ski tech? And, uh, I mean, obviously, I knew how to do skis from when I was racing myself, but I had never worked as a ski technician before and didn't have any sort of qualifications or anything like that. But um, immediately knew it was a, an opportunity. You know, if I didn't do it then, no one was going to ask me the following year if I wanted to be a ski tech. I was only becoming further and further away or further and further away from elite racing the more time I spent just working with kids. So it was a one time offer and uh, took a chance, did it, ended up staying with him for year and a half um it was brilliant traveled all over the world went to various world cups um met loads of people and uh, i mean i wouldn't have had that job if i hadn't raced and the jobs that i get now i wouldn't have had if i didn't take that job so everything kind of connected in a way 
Just a quick favor to ask. If you love the show and you think it may help someone else in the world, then head to wherever you listen to The Freedom Project and leave a five-star review and maybe even share it with some friends. It really does help me and it helps the show too. I can continue to get fantastic guests on the show. It reaches more people and it makes me feel great too. So I would be enormously grateful if you could leave a five-star review and share any episodes of the podcast that you love. Yeah, it seems like you're, there's there's this pull that you go through or you can go through when you leave something like that where you get pulled towards like normality, like a standard existence of like, mm-hmm. I'll just get like a standard nine to five job and I will yeah. stop traveling around the world and stop making the mountains kind of my thing. How did you, did you feel that? I did and I avoided it at absolutely all costs. <laughs> I would never, I don't think I could ever allow that to happen to myself and um, I'm, I'm just not happy unless I'm outdoors, unless I'm in the mountains, unless I'm doing these things that I've talked about, unless I'm uh, just, I don't know, listening to my curiosity and going and skiing that peak or climbing or running that mountain, whatever. Um, I just have to do these things. They're not negotiable for me. Is that kind of what was I don't know, driving you or pulling you towards a certain direction? when in that what three-year period where you didn't really have like when you left ski tour um ski touring ski uh racing and you're like okay uh-huh. i don't know what to do was it like kind of well i know i don't want to go this way so i'm gonna fuck that off and go yeah this way. Yeah. yeah um i had no desire whatsoever to apply for anything that you consider a normal job um you know there's plenty of normal jobs on offer in, in the city at home but um, not once did I consider that to be an option. It was always about continuing to work on skis on snow. Um, I would definitely like to work in more than just ski racing. Um, you know, if I, if I could work in in climbing and do more stuff with running as well, I hundred percent would. Um, but obviously, with the the experience that I have, both as a racer and now as a uh, ski technician or coach, the, the experience I have in ski racing is um, way more. Uh, I mean it's clearly my, my strengths from a professional point of view and so all the work I get ends up being there I would definitely like to diversify that and be able to work more in climbing and mountaineering um, obviously I'll do some part-time work now for Black Diamond which is a big step in that direction which is cool um, but I definitely want to spend more time in the bigger mountains and not just on on race slopes you know for the same reason I guess that's another one of the reasons why I stopped racing is I wanted to see more than just race slopes um and that that still applies like i don't just want to to coach and stand on coach's corner giving feedback to people about courses or you know tuning people's skis i want to to be in the bigger mountains and eventually i'd like to be fully qualified mountain guide i think um you had tom grant on your podcast mm-hmm. um and um you know I, I look at people like that and think that's that's how i want to spend my life um i'd like to be able to work in the mountains but also meet lots of new people every day and share my own experience with people um yeah yeah man that's that sounds like the path it's like if you can still pay like respect or still keep part of that history where you've like Mm -hmm. okay this is what i've done this is what i know but then like so you root yourself in that but then also go toward the exciting the thing that really captivates your attention the thing that's like this is the thing that i think about the whole time that's the, yeah the magic i'm sure there's some sort of blend there and the thing is if like if that's not a clear road then that's what the perfect path to walk is there's a joseph campbell quote of like if the path ahead of you is clear you're on the wrong path and that's mm-hmm. what we're looking for here it's like can you can you find your own way in that like can you especially like do something that's really unique to you mm-hmm. exactly and so that involves a lot of just making it up as you go along yeah exactly and going I, wrong I I, yeah exactly I, I have no idea what i'm doing half the time <laughs> and mm-hmm. you know half the things uh half the like climbing or skiing techniques particularly anything in backcountry or you know there's lots of rope work with climbing there's so many of these things i've just learned off the internet like i'm just um i don't know I mean, maybe that's what the new generation does but um, I feel like a lot of the things I've, I've managed to figure out without proper instruction um, and that just proves I mean you, you can basically do anything you want like that that Mont Blanc project was so special for me 
Uh, I mean, it's not technically a difficult mountain, but um, it, it was challenging and it was just the, the purest uh, thing for me to do. Um, and it was, yeah, it was a real challenge. And it, it was just me. I didn't, um, it, yeah, so unsupported. It was, it was so simple and so rewarding. Yeah, I bet. How did it? How did it feel when you completed that loop? When you got back to the church and you're like, "That's me done." Um, I'm guessing physically <laughs> fucked, but yeah, my feet were in bits, and I was just lying on the floor, <laughs> lying on the floor, laughing. I actually cried a little bit, which is kind of ridiculous, but it was an important project to me, and it was the the kind of first big project of its kind for me. So it was it was special and it had been an idea in my head for a long time. So when I'd finally done it and um, it it was never about the FKT, it was always just about doing it in the best style possible for me, which was fast and light and alone. And it it all went to plan. The forecast was, you know, the weather was as forecasted. The conditions were right. I took the right equipment. I took enough equipment, but not too much equipment. And everything just went, it was, it went perfectly and it was exactly the experience I was after. So, um, after that, I still had another ten days in Chamonix, and I'd How'd you gone top that? from well, yeah, I didn't. I just relaxed and drank beer with friends, and did some easy rock climbing, did some easy runs. Uh, I was playing around with my camera a lot, but like I really didn't do anything. I mean, even remotely big after that, I just I was satisfied, and and I was, I guess. Uh, physically my body was tired for a while afterwards it took you know, two or three weeks to recover from it um but i was happy just cruising up easy routes and hanging out with friends and doing everything a little bit slower paced than i had for the first five weeks or so of my trip it's interesting you mentioned that kind of emotional release at the end because like i always get that whenever i like top out a mountain or summit something uh-huh. or i'm like do something that is like it's only ever with like a big mountain. It never happens with like a really tough sport pitch or something like that. I never get mm-hmm. like that feeling or like me, not even at the end of like a mega powder run. It's there's something mm-hmm. about like completing a journey where you're like, yeah. that took every bit of me. Like I remember the first like proper mountaineering summit I hit and I was like, uh-huh. Oh, like I'm fighting back the tears, like big style here because it is like, yeah. There's something about it. Well, that's like a bit like we were talking about at the start. Like you need a certain amount of suffering for it to be good. If it was easy, if it was just a single pitch sport route or if it was, you know, a half hour run or whatever, it's not going to feel as good. If you've suffered for six or seven hours, um, I mean, it's not pure suffering every single moment, but if you've worked hard for six or seven hours and it's been, yeah, hard work for six or seven hours, even with all the good views and all the, the type one fun, uh, with all that type two fun as well and all the hard bits that's what makes it feel really good what was the most type two fun bit of that experience um the last hour of the descent because then um because yeah I, I guess i was descending quite quickly um and i knew what petter's time was and at some point maybe as i was passing the gute hut or something like that i thought hmm i wonder if i can get within an hour of him like this guy's a pro athlete if i could do that that would be really cool um and obviously i ended up being an hour and four minutes slower than him but just because the time was so close and like i was trying to calculate in my head how many meters i had to descend and you know i would watch the watch and see you know it's just taken me 15 minutes to descend 500 meters and that means i've got 1500 meters to go and how how much time is that going to take and so i was like calculating it was so close to to being within an hour of him it was just a made-up goal like I'd, I'd never planned anything in advance but it was just as i was running i was thinking about this and i just started running faster and faster and if, if you look at the heart rate graphs for example um from the the data in the bottom section the, the as the descent goes on my heart rate just gets higher and higher and higher like as i'm closer and closer to the finish by the end of it i mean i was just absolutely hammering down um i guess the last kilometer maybe is on road is on tarmac through the Zouche to get to the church and at that point, my feet were just pounding on the tarmac and I had massive blisters, you know, on the kind of ball of your of your heel. The whole thing, the, the skin had started to move. So, I mean, there was blisters like this size on both heels. And it felt, yeah, horrible. It felt like the skin was being ripped off or something or every step. But um, I just knew I was nearly done. And, you know, I just spent six hours putting effort in. What's another five minutes? Like, might as well just push it till the absolute, uh, till the absolute end. 
Yeah, there's something about that state. There's something mm. about that's so fucking good. Of just yeah. like what this is, especially when you're doing something by yourself. Like I did a 55k ultra in Snowdonia, and like it was a kind of a self-structured wow. thing with a friend um, that I managed yeah. to convince to come along to do that with me. And there's like the last. 5k it was basically like a thousand meters of descent in about 250 300 meters of like <laughs> lateral travel and mm-hmm. it was just like savage it was just destroying us the whole time and after like mm-hmm. yeah after 50 okay but it was so good like that feel like laughing and the way down just like this is this sucks but it's great then you get some experience like my time with the marines and you're just like that that felt different. That was just more type yeah. three fun. It's still like, yeah. it's still dubious whether that was enjoyable or not. Yeah, I hear you. Cool. So what's next? What's the objectives for you, dude? Uh, what's next? I'm not sure. I, I don't have a, a, a solid answer. I want to, to ski lots this winter. I'd like to spend more time skiing in the Chamonix Valley because I've not actually skied there very much. Um, I'd like to ski things that are steeper, bigger, more exposed than I've done before. Um, I think I'm definitely ready to ski some bigger lines than what I've already done. Um, and then next summer, I'd like a, a similar project. And then I've not figured out what that is yet. Um, and it's, it's definitely not all about FKTs. It's about doing things in that that really pure, simple style that I've talked about, unsupported, solo um, I've not been up the Matterhorn yet. I'd like to go up the Matterhorn if I could do that solo unsupported um, from Zermatt in one push in a day. That would be really cool. There's a bit more logistics there because it's a more technical route. And I mean, going up Mont Blanc, you can pass people or overtake people anywhere. Um, going up the Hornley Ridge on the Matterhorn is uh, not as easy to overtake people. And so figuring out what time of day you'd want to do that to avoid any traffic, avoid any queues, because um, I mean I, I, w- I won't be taking any records there but I'd still want to do it as fast as possible uh, for me and the last thing I'd want is to be three and a half hours in and then get to like a bottleneck or something and there's like a bunch of people waiting to abseil and they won't let you climb around them or whatever and you've got to be polite in these situations um, so it's just figuring out how to avoid that and maybe just doing more I mean th- that's another obvious classic but there's loads of smaller less well-known mountains that um i'd like to do in that style i think doing things that most people would do in two days trying to squeeze it into a day um that feels good for me so more of that kind of style of mountaineering basically do you have to be super creative now to do firsts of anything and i, th- yeah. I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing do you know i think yeah. his name's will sim who um paraglides up shit and catch the thermals yes. and then skis down like that that looks like such a fun way was, to access mountains was he in that film yeah a new way up I yeah remember. which yeah. is fantastic yeah that's brilliant anyone listening go and watch that great mm-hmm. film i've recommended that to so many people i've watched it twice and um, that's really cool i've i've had my eye on paragliding for a while now i've kind of half-assed said that i wanted to do it this summer but didn't really find time and i had more than enough fun uh, this summer without it but um i really want to um commit to doing that in in spring um obviously take a course learn how to paraglide get set up um because you know in winter you get to climb up things and then you get to ski down um in summer you get to climb up things and then you have to climb back down again and <laughs> that's not always fun so why not add another add another tool to the to the toolbox another skill and skill set um, and being able to fly would just be amazing. I mean, imagine going up Mont Blanc in four hours, 40 minutes, whatever it was I did, but then you have to think about descending afterwards. You get your wing out and you, you fly all the way back down. Um, it just opens up so many possibilities. You, you can use it with skiing. You know, um, People always say, particularly in the Chamonix Valley, to be careful following ski tracks because you don't know if they've just got to the bottom of the line and it cliffs out and then they've flown off. Yeah. Um, so it just opens so many possibilities being able to fly off something um but yeah i'm i'm curious about that that's the curiosity thing going again i I want to know what i could use it for what i could do uh with the ability to fly so um i'll go make that happen and yeah i don't don't know what i'll be able to do with it um but 
hopefully a year from now it will be obvious <laughs> yeah like it never used to interest me and then like two things really triggered it one was i did my season out where billy lived actually um in Thalsony, <laughs> and there was the husband and wife team who are the both the first people to paraglide off the top of Everest. And I was mm-hmm. like, that's cool in itself. Like I didn't even think about that. And then secondly, just seeing them doing it around there, it was just like, that uh-huh. is like this. If you're not exposed to it the whole time, it's, um, it's not something you really get a buzz for. And then like, you uh-huh. kind of put two and two together and you watch and you think about the freedom, the expression you could have through that and the access. It's so mm-hmm. cool. The access, exactly what you said. It's, it's quite cool. I mean, I think um, through the kind of peak of summer, there's maybe two or three months where there's a flying ban on on the the interesting side of the Chamonix Valley, so people can only take off on the um, north side of the valley, I guess. Um, but that that was lifted, I don't know, two or three weeks ago. So social media right now is just full of people flying around, you know, doing hiking flies off off Mont Blanc, off Mont Blanc de Tafu, any of those peaks, you know, you can just take the Aguita Media up and, and fly from there and all of that looks looks really, really cool. So I think nice. the plan is to get a get a course and start building all the skills in spring. Um, yeah, that's you know you said about like summer. learning the skills yourself through Googling. That's uh-huh. probably not the one, yeah. is it? Yeah. <laughs> no, it's not. I am I'm gonna take a course for that. But I'd I'd like to um, yeah, it's funny. People people have taught themselves without courses, you know. I'm sure they have. At least t- t- two or three people. I met a guy in summer who'd uh, bought a Speedwing off Facebook Marketplace secondhand and taught himself to fly. That's crazy. So um, <laughs> it is possible. I just had this guy on the podcast, Bernd Marius Rorstad, and he'll be about five episodes behind you, four episodes behind you. He was a speed rider. Oh, he is a speed rider, and he kind of gave it up. Um, one of the reasons why is because of a massive crash where he ended up having his foot amputated. He's now back in the mountains and doing some really cool yeah. shit. Um, but yeah, yeah. Pro- <laughs> maybe maybe there's some others like some some process of learning in that. It, I mean, it's, it's definitely um, dangerous sports, and I think you know I still make mistakes when I'm skiing, or I make mistakes when um, when I'm running, and so you know, I'll have to think very seriously about my decisions because you can't really afford to make mistakes with, with air sports like that. And, um, you know, I find it quite easy to be, to always want the next step. Like I've said, you know, always wondering what's next. Um, but I think for me, I'll need to be, um, you know, I want to stay on, on fairly big wings, try and stay away from speed riding mm-hmm. and keep things a little bit more sensible and, and use it as a, as a tool more than treating it as a, a fun sport or anything because then very quickly you get sucked into speed riding proximity stuff taking risks and that's not the reasons i want to get into i want to get into it to be able to um to be able to not have to run down mountains to be able to get in and out of places um and i just need to remind myself that there's the reasons for doing it yeah nice man there's um I th- this feels like poor form to promote another episode on your episode um but i did this episode with i had two one with andy torbett who's a cave diver and explorer and it just seems mm-hmm. mental and like he said about cave diving that you it's completely binary you go in and you come out fine or you die and there's nothing in between mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like it sounds yeah. rubbish but his whole thing was like you have to prepare so well that nothing like you know nothing can go wrong even if you're on your like yeah, no not even on your b game like it's like a c game that day and then mm-hmm. i had another one with um tim howe the base jumper and mm-hmm. um he was just like there's no such thing as luck you prepare and you prepare and you prepare yeah. even if like yeah there's those two episodes like i think they'd put you in for anyone learning a new sport especially a, a sport like that i think that's they're probably two good ones to bear in mind yeah, I, I should. I've not listened to that Tim Howell one, but I will. Um, I think I, I've not met Tim, but he's an interesting guy, and he's clearly got um, a, a good track record of not hurting himself. Which, considering how many jumps he's done, um, shows that he's definitely doing something right. And we could probably all learn something from his thought process and decision making. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly what I had him on. Anyway, it's been such a pleasure. Actually, there's one more question that I haven't asked that I've been meaning to. Um, what is it about being yeah. solo and unsupported that is so attractive to you? Um, well, it's just so simple. I mean, that's that's how it started. There was, I don't know, some random caveman at some point said, holy shit, look at that big mountain. I wonder if I can go up there and come back down and still be down for dinner. And 
it's still the same thing. I just like doing things and um, obviously I like doing things in the moment with other people as well. But um, for for some projects, it's nice just to do it by yourself, you know, no distractions. It's just you're fully in the moment. There's nothing else going on in your head apart from the trail in front of you or the rock in front of you or whatever it is. It's so pure. It's so simple. Um, I just think it, yeah, it's brilliant. For, for me, that's the, the best style to do things. And it's not the only style. And there, there's days where I'd want to do things in another style. You know, sometimes I want to climb with friends. Sometimes I want to do something with my girlfriend, whatever. There's, there's loads of different ways of doing it and all of them are good. There's no, um, there's no rights or wrongs. Um, but sometimes I like to, to go in the solo unsupported style and, maybe the most rewarding for me nice man nice sounds like a dream um where can people follow you on instagram anywhere else uh instagram is just my name ian innes um i do have a youtube channel i've not posted anything on it for a couple of years and uh, but i'm determined to change that i'd like to make some more videos There's some great stuff this on there. winter yeah i had some I really mean, fun adventures yeah, I was just kind of messing around a couple of years ago. It was coming out of COVID. I had a lot of free time. I spent a lot of time watching YouTube videos and decided, well, I'm doing some cool things as well. Why don't I share some of them? Uh, everything was just filmed on my phone and a 360 camera. They were edited by a friend who um, I think was a marketing student at the time. And now he's working down in London for a marketing company. And he is not a video editor. He doesn't want to be a video editor as far as I'm aware. He's but, still forced him um, to do it. Yeah, he, he can't say no. I, I don't know. He he was as excited about the project as I was. Um, he actually edited a video. Um, I filmed a video of my mum running a few years ago and never did anything with the footage. And so my mum's got everything and I couldn't figure out what to get her for her birthday. And I suddenly remember I had all this footage and I just sent him a message and said, is there any chance you can nice. edit all this footage together? You know, maybe like a Danny McGaskill style video, that kind of like... Um, older music and everything and he was like yeah of course um, he, he wanted to learn how to lead climb he hadn't been lead climbing before so the deal was I'd take him climbing take him through the basics of lead climbing and he'd edit this video for me um, and he said when's your birthday and I said oh it's uh, it's on Monday and this was Friday night at the time so <laughs> very kind two, hours, two, two days to do it and he, he did it he smashed it so um, that's a guy called Robbie Ty I'll definitely work with him again and he probably doesn't want to edit my videos, but yeah. So if anyone wants to again, guilt someone into some free video editing, <laughs> hit Robbie up. Yeah, he's your guy. That's, that's my plan. Yeah, good man. Um, thank you for joining me, dude. Um, real pleasure to be chatting. Thank you. Join us on a powerful journey with Once We Were Warriors, a documentary that transcends boundaries and speaks to the souls of our veterans. We need your support to turn this vision into reality. Once We Were Warriors reveals the path to recovery for injured Royal Marines commandos in the French Alps. Produced by former servicemen, it offers the most authentic storytelling. This documentary dives deep into the lives of those who have served, challenging stereotypes and advocating for veterans' care as we approach a decade since the end of combat operations in Afghanistan. But to make this vision a reality, we need your support and your funding. Support us on a crowdfunding campaign at www.oncewewerewarriorsfilm.com to help us make this documentary a reality and give a voice to those who have sacrificed so much. Join us in making a difference. Together, we can rewrite the narrative for our veterans. Once more, that link is www.oncewewerewarriorsfilm.com.